welcome to this week's show of the world's greatest exchange and link server podcast, the UC Architects. This is episode three, recorded on the 14th of July, 2012. I'm your host, Steve Goodman, and this week I'm joined by exchange and link MVPs, Mahud Magdi, Stole Hansen, Tom Arbuthnot, and Justin Morris. Mahmoud, uh, you're an Egyptian technology architect. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, if people don't know who you are. Um, uh, I'm a technology architect at uh, ingazad.com. I'm, uh, uh, I'm working in IT with, for more than 10 years now. I'm Exchange Server MVP, um, a lot of concentration on uh, Microsoft technologies and virtualization technologies. Um, I blog at uh, autodiscover at wordpress.com and you can find me at uh, twitter underscore busbar um, and that's all about me. In today's show, Mahmoud, you're going to be talking to us about Office 365 and also about some certificate changes in Exchange. Uh, and you're my fellow Exchange MVP for today's show. And moving on to our link MVPs, starting with Stole. Hello, Stole. Hello, Steve. Well, Hi. Uh, if people don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is uh, Stole Hansen, and you almost uh, nailed it. Um, I work as a UC architect uh, and the link consultant at uh, Atia AS in uh, Norway. Uh, I've been a link MVP since uh, 2011, and uh, I'm also a Microsoft uh, virtual uh, TSP. Oh, tell us about what a virtual TSP is. Uh, virtual TSP is um, well. TSP stands for Technology Solution Professional, and um, I am virtually attached to the Microsoft uh, group, uh, evangelizing and uh, talking to customers about uh, Microsoft Unified Communications. Ah, right. So, it's, is it a bit like uh, a pre-sales type of thing? A pre-sale, uh, most uh, technical based, and uh, I'm supporting the sales team and. Um, uh, the guys in, in at Microsoft uh, uh, as a virtual uh, TSP, I uh, am not billed uh, by Microsoft, or uh, I had received no pay. Just um, uh, work at here and uh, and um, help uh, the Microsoft guys. So you've got a, a stamp of uh, approval from Microsoft uh, to, to talk about Link uh, at least. Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> uh, and Tom, hello, Tom. Tom Arbuthnot. Hey, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hey, good to be on again. Um, so, yeah, Tom Arbuthnot. I'm a, a Link MVP, um, also blog at linkedup.com and uh, work in modality systems, so pretty much all Link all the time. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and you're uh, one of the founders of uh, the London UC User Group, aren't you? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, myself, Justin Morris and, and Adam Jacobs, um, three Link MVPs around London, and we have a, uh, a quarterly Link uh, or Microsoft UC uh, user group event. And when's the next one? Oh, thank you. I was going to plug <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, the next one is on the uh, 26th of July, so this month, a um, couple of weeks now, and it's at Microsoft's London office in Victoria. So, uh, yeah, if you Google uh, Microsoft UC User Group London uh, Eventbrite registration, it'd be great to see people get involved. And you mentioned Justin. Justin's with us today as well. Uh, Justin, you're uh, a new Link MVP as of the first, just like me. Um, yeah, how does yeah. it feel? Um, absolutely stoked, Steve. Um, yeah, really, really wrapped to get it. Yeah. C well, c congratulations. You definitely deserve it. 
and if people don't know who you are, uh, give us a, a quick short intro. Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, Justin Morris, um, Microsoft MVP for Link. Um, also work with Tom at Modality Systems as a consultant. Um, and I just do I Microsoft Link day in and day out. So I do um, everything around design and architecture and implementation and um, helping users uh, make the most out of Link and sort of answering questions and doing demos and things like that. Um, I run my own blog at uh, justin-morris.net, um, active on Twitter on uh, Justin Morris, like Justin Morris without the end. Um, I'm always uh, all over TechNet forums and that kind of thing and uh, also run the Microsoft UC user group in London with Tom. Well, fantastic. And yes, thank you to my guests today for introducing themselves uh, and if you don't know who I am I'm Steve Goodman I'm a technical architect uh, over in the, the UK a Microsoft gold partner and uh, as of the first uh, I'm an exchange MVP and very happy to be one uh, when I'm not uh, designing and implementing exchange uh, I also blog over at stevieg.org and as of a few days ago my first article's up now on msexchange.org uh, so if you want to find a bit more about Office 365 planning, uh, head over there. This week we're going to be talking Office 365 and Live Edu, implications of Windows 8 and Server 2012, certificate changes uh, that are going to affect both Link and Exchange, and we're going to be taking some of the questions we've received on Facebook and giving you some answers, uh, mostly around Link. Welcome to the show, Mahmood. It's great to finally talk to you. We've spoken online uh, for the last couple of years now, uh, so it's the first time we've actually spoken on a on a link call. Yeah, it's it's strange how social media affects uh, uh, the relations between people, and uh, I'm really glad being here in the in third episode and uh, looking forward to be uh, in more uh, in the upcoming episodes. So you've been working uh, with Live at Edu over the last few months, and of course Office three six five uh, on quite an interesting project. Yeah, um, we have been working with a major uh, educational institute uh, where uh, they were, we were migrating them from their on-premise to uh, life at EDU. And uh, as, as we spoke on, uh, on the email, the Office 365 for Education has been launched in UK uh, and US, but it wasn't uh, for our region until uh, last month, I, as I uh, understood from the local Microsoft folks. So oh, we migrated... Right. Yeah, so we migrated uh, this customer to live at EDU, and uh, what I wanted to 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 speak about uh, today, what could wrong understanding cause for projects for mega projects, because um, we had uh, we had an issue in this project regarding password synchronization, yeah. and uh, we ha we spent like three to four days uh, trying to make everything works. And uh, when, when it worked, the customer uh, didn't uh, like it, so we moved to Office uh, 365. So uh, for the PCNS, I wanted to, to elaborate how it works for, for, uh, for uh, Life at EDU. Because um, for, uh, for Life at EDU, we had, uh, we had password synchronization problems. Uh, because uh, the customer understood that he can synchronize the passwords over uh, over uh, uh, the cloud to live at EDU using PCMS, and we set the whole thing up, but uh, unfortunately, it didn't work. Um, we spent PCMS didn't work. Yeah, 
the problem that uh, he gave us a bunch of accounts that are normal users, but they were previously domain admins. Uh, right, and okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, customers lie to you unintentionally. So he, 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 he gave us those uh, like 10 accounts. They were domain admins before, and uh, we tried to synchronize them. So uh, the first thing, you have to make sure that admin filtering for PCNS uh, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, configured for domain administrators. And uh, to make sure that uh, you are, s even if you are testing, you are using normal users. Yeah, it's, it's always good to create new, fresh users if you can to, yeah, to just get things yeah. set up. And if you're going to be testing with real users, make sure that they are representative of your actual user base. Uh, IT departments can be a bit of a minefield when it comes to testing and pilots. Yes. The, the, the second thing is uh, how people uh, might intercept the password synchronization to life at edu because uh, for life at edu, at edu when you create an account you send you have an initial password and when the user login the they have uh, they have to change the password at the first time and uh, what we have been informed by the microsoft folks when uh, when the password didn't uh, password synchronization didn't work yeah so when you create an account at Life at EDU, you create it with an initial password, and the when the user logins, he had he has to change the password, yeah, and he will start using a Life at EDU. What we have been informed, and it looks like nobody understands the operation or the process how it works, uh, that you will the, uh, to synchronize for PCNS to work, you will have to synchronize uh, to create the accounts using uh, old sync. Yeah. And users will have to log in, change the password, and then run um, OL sync again, and then password will work, password synchronization will work. And yeah, this is I've wrong. had to, I've encountered that myself in the past, and the only decent yes. way around it is to use PowerShell provisioning uh, for the fir for creating the account to make sure it's got the, the same password as the AD account, and then let OL sync link the accounts together and PCNS push the password changes after that point if you want to make it a smooth login experience. Uh, but it, it, it is obviously a, a big downside with the, the older live EDU. Yeah, so you can you can synchronize the accounts uh, using all sync, provision them, synchronize the passwords without the need to to pre-create them at the life at edu because yeah. uh, it looks like it, there were there were a couple of versions. I, I I'm not sure what is going on with the with the understanding here, but what we have tested is configure the the accounts, configure a all sync, synchronize the account to. Uh, to, uh, to to life at edu and it will provision the accounts uh, the accounts with the password the only catch and the only one catch here uh, for uh, for customers and consultants out there out there that uh, for pcns uh, for pcns to work you will have to make the users users change their uh, change their passwords at least once before uh, doing the migration and this yeah, is yeah that's right because when it creates the account uh, through lsync for the first time if you're allowing it to create the account, it creates it with a random password, which it can save to a file, 
the other approach could be, it depends on, on the provisioning system, will be to let it create the account through OL sync and before the user is given the details, reset the password once more. Yeah. So it will push that out via PCNS. Yes, uh, uh, my customer, uh, uh, we, we, we informed our customer about uh, the password change requirement, but it looks like we didn't check it up with the higher uh, management and the, the, uh, the IT manager approved it, but the IT director didn't because he, he had like uh, 3000 uh, users and he didn't like uh, setting all of their password and requiring them to change it. So we moved to Office uh, 365 and it came with another learning curve because um, uh, what I will, uh, I will tell uh, everybody there, uh, never ever configure Active Directory Federation and change the domain admin. So you, th you create the five admins uh, yes. in Office 365. You, so you added your at domain okay. uh, as a non-federated domain created yeah. admins in that non-federated domain then federated okay. the domain and then yes. then that's when you have problems yes. right okay uh, yeah it's pro probably an even better idea not to create any accounts on under the domains that you're going to use as the federated domains before you do the directory sync and things like that uh, yeah. And if you're going to create those admins to start with, either create them as our Microsoft ones or okay. make them admins after the directory sync has run. Would you agree? Yes, I yeah. agree 100% agree with you. Right. And never change the domain, uh, the default domain that you created the domain with from on Microsoft to, uh, to the default domain to, to, to have a way to, uh, to look back to your uh, control panel at uh, Office 365. Exactly. If you've got no admins that have got Microsoft Online Services IDs with passwords, and it's yes. all federated, if you have a, a failure at your end with the with federation, then you just you, you're not going to be able to log in at all to yeah. even raise a support yeah. request for your tenant. Yes, exactly. And uh, luckily, we had uh, this only one account, and we were able to log in and uh, configure directory synchronization, and things went fine. Uh, because uh, the five domains, uh, the five domain admins to elaborate, elabor elaborate a little bit, will require Active Directory Federation, which is not configured, and we didn't, ha we don't have Directory Sync configured yet. So uh, uh, never, co never configure the own Microsoft uh, uh, domain. Uh, uh, sorry, dot Microsoft admin account to use your domain admin account, do uh, domain name. Yeah, and I, th I think that comes back to, to good planning as well, uh, it's especially yeah. for Office 365 because it, it might be a cloud-based solution, but you still need to plan in advance for exactly what you're going to be doing. Uh, otherwise, you, you are going to run into problems where you make ad hoc decisions along the way and go, right, okay, we're going to, let's make these people admins, let's test it out, or let's make these changes. Uh, and if they're not... And if they're not thought through or that a test environment is, is set up because it's even easier to get a, a test environment for Office 365 because you don't have to set it up yourself. You can just create uh, a new, even a, a new trial tenant and use that. Uh, you can test out these things sit and see what happens yes. before you, you end up doing it for real and breaking your actual tenant. Uh, and another thing, especially with the larger organisations like universities, is to make sure that you, you've done all the checks beforehand to see what the object counts are like uh, f to 
for example, if you're over, I think it's been up from 20,000 to 50,000 objects, uh, you need to, to get the, the limits raised for, for DirSync so you can synchronise all your objects. Yes. Uh, yes. So if uh, and make sure that it's raised to an appropriate value, um, because if you're at ninety thousand objects at the moment in your Active Directory, and they raise it to hundred thousand, and you've got a, a, for example, in a university, an intake of another ten thousand students, then that might take you temporarily over the limit for a few months. So you need to make sure that, that that's all sized correctly as well. Uh, and if you're using Dersync in, at that sort of level, looking at using a proper SQL Server backend rather than its, its built-in SQL Server Express. Yes, I 100% agree, but uh, two things here. Uh, with, with Office 365, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a new beast, uh, at least for me, um, because uh, it's not popular here in my region uh, and in Egypt. It's, uh, I think it's the third implementation here in Egypt. And um, for uh, for people who are just going with Office 365, uh, plan, plan, and try to do pilot as and uh, read articles as much as you can because uh, it's totally new piece. You cannot just treat it uh, as an on-premise. It's uh, totally new thing. Yeah. Uh, where so? What data centers do, do Egypt use for Office 365? This is the third implementation. Yeah. Uh, the cloud, uh, the cloud is uh, the, the Office 365 cloud is not really popular here in Egypt, but uh, people started to look at it seriously um, uh, before, uh, after, sorry, after the revolution, because uh, people are afraid about their data and managing their data center currently with the current security status. It's it's better. So it's the opposite. It's the opposite of countries like Germany that are very keen on privacy and want to make sure it all stays within the country or within yeah. or within the organisation itself. Uh, in Egypt, you often want it out of the country uh, to somewhere where it can't be tampered with or is unlikely to be yes. tampered with it by, uh, by, by people within the country. Yes. Uh, I had this discussion with an, uh, an IT director and he said... I like to keep my kids around me, and uh, we were talking about Office 365, and he wasn't convinced with uh, giving his exchange to other people, as he said. Uh, but uh, the culture is changing, and uh, and because uh, because in Egypt, you will find most of the companies uh, from the 200 to 500 users. So having an on-premise and managing the on-premise exchange is uh, is very challenging for such a small amount of users. Uh, so I think that uh, within the upcoming two years, we will see more and more use for Office 365 within Egypt. I think just in general, it presents a really good opportunity uh, for for companies that manage smaller organisations to move from solutions like Small Business Server to Office 365 as well. Uh, because not only do they they, they get to help their, the companies that they support on a more regular yeah. basis and, and move the mailboxes up, uh, there's something in it for them in the, the long run as well. Uh, and yeah. and it makes it easier to, to scale out and, and look after a lot more small companies. Uh, Microsoft have, imp- uh, have now implemented a partner control panel for Office 365 that allows companies that deal with uh, smaller businesses to manage multiple customers. Uh, so I, yeah. I think that's quite a c- compelling offering as well, uh, especially with Small Business Server being uh, removed as an offering uh, yes. with Windows Server 2012. Yeah, uh, um, 
the problem that uh, here in Egypt uh, everybody is using uh, the standard exchange edition uh, or the enterprise. Nobody's uh, small business server is not really popular, but uh, everybody on on the other side, everybody is, is, is struggling with uh, with the administration. So. Uh, uh, as I, as I said, I will, uh, I will bet that uh, within the next year we will see more and more. We have uh, just heard about one of the largest construction companies um, uh, moved to the cloud. They have like 20k plus uh, users and they moved to, the, to Office 365. For Germany, as far as I know from my friends, they, they have a lot of privacy issue, issues. So uh, I'm not sure if uh, if uh, if my feedback is correct or not, but uh, uh, they they have a lot of privacy issues. But uh, but again, uh, culture will change. I, I this is the main thing. Culture will culture will will change. So moving back to the live at EDU thing. So that was a successful implementation on Office three six five in the end. Yeah, uh, we we closed everything this morning, and uh, oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. It was uh, it was very hectic because, uh, as you said, we were doing a lot of ad hoc decisions because uh, uh, the study will start within two weeks in Egypt, so we had to close everything as, as fast as we can. So everything is closed, and uh, he's a happy customer now. Oh, well done. Yeah. And Mahmoud, you also uh, wanted to talk to us a little bit about certificate changes Uh in the next few years and how they're going to affect exchange and link yeah um, what, uh, people uh, the, the the security cap uh, announced announced last week that uh, there will be no uh, uh, invalid domain names in the certificate which means dot local dot dom netbys uh, domain uh, host netbys host names Will not be uh, approved in certificates uh, starting November uh, November uh, 2015. Uh, uh, I believe this will require a lot of people who are doing um, exchange and link to look to their implementation seriously and start planning ahead for it. So, Mahmoud, does this affect people who are using SAN certificates or UCC certificates? Yes, uh, because since ex Exchange 2007, we were using uh, UCC certificates heavily. And uh, for simplicity, we were including the, the internal names in, uh, in the certificates. And some people even including the NetBice names. And all of that will not be approved anymore starting November uh, 2015. So this so, is pretty uh, good news in my eyes because I'm... <laughs> totally against having dot local names on public certificates uh, but that's one of the reasons why people are keen to use them instead of perhaps going with their, their wildcard certificates that they have already bought because they wanted to have the internal names and the external names uh, separate and not use a split DNS but having a split yes. DNS doesn't necessarily have to be that hard in, in my opinion uh, so I think having the same name internally and externally for your HTTPS namespaces, which is what you're using the SAN certificates for in exchange, is really going to be a good thing, and it will make things for end users uh, a little bit more uh, understandable as well, uh, because inside and outside the organisation, IT is going to be forced to let them use the same name. Yeah, uh, and this is part of the changes that people will have to plan for, 
because uh, I, I'm talking about uh, my uh, most of my implementations uh, here in my region. Uh, people are using internal names and not using split DNS. So uh, people will start planning for their DNS infrastructure. And uh, if they want to use uh, separate names internally and externally, um, uh, I blogged about it uh, last week, uh, you will have to use two sites, two, uh, two websites, and configure um, uh, sorry, uh, all our virtual directories and everything in each site according to the internal and external access uh, you, want to, uh, you want to handle. Uh, the, the only catch that until now we cannot use uh, host headers in IIS with Exchange 2010. Uh, it, it will break OWA and ECP. Uh, so you will have to configure two uh, websites and configure your client access servers with, with uh, two IP addresses and configure each website to listen to the, on, uh, the corresponding uh, IP address. Uh, but I believe that uh, the Exchange team will come up with a fix uh, for the host header, header, header thing and uh, uh, we will be able to use host headers with the uh, Exchange um, and, uh, and that's uh, part of the planning. You will have to plan for DNS and IP addresses and firewalls. I, uh, I'm a big fan of keeping it simple and if you can have one name internally and externally for the HTTPS namespace then that's, that's great. Uh, a lot of the time on forums, I see a bit of confusion between that because people are going, well, I've got my client access array. I've called that uh, outlook.mydomain.com. Uh, uh, and that's what I also wanted to call my external name or my internal name. Uh, and I think that's where the, the split is. So if you're going to have casarray.domain.local, that is just for mappy traffic, nothing else. And then you, and then your HTTPS namespaces. The stuff that's going on this certificate can be the same. It doesn't. It just doesn't matter. And having a split DNS doesn't even need to be your whole DNS. So if you've got a whole load of external websites, then and you're worried about having to copy all the IP addresses, keep both in in sync, you could just create a zone for mail.contoso.com or and autodiscover.contoso.com and just have that as a separate zone. That's my opinion, and I think that works really well because then you don't have to do an entire split DNS and your local Active Directory will be able to resolve those different IP addresses for the, for the internal IPs of your exchange infrastructure. And then you can have the same name internally, externally, use these uh, certificates with just valid domain names without any issue. Uh, so I, I, might, I might write a, a blog post in the next few weeks about how to do that simply uh, but uh, especially with companies with lots and lots of domains and lots of non-domain joint clients where we can't do split DNS across all their domains and they need an auto-discover domain that works really well yeah, I've got a, a customer that I think has 20 accepted domains and I've used a, a technique to make sure that auto-discover works on all their iPhones uh, that, and that same sort of technique of just having a zone with the full name uh, or two zones for a smaller implementation with mail and auto discover is uh, is a straightforward way of, of getting around that uh, but then of course there's the link implications where a lot of people or everyone is pretty much using sans certificates for link as well isn't that right tom 
Right, um, Link, yeah, it's pretty normal to use Sands. Um, we've just had the ability to use wild cards as of CU6 for some of the reverse proxy role, um, but generally we'd always say use a, a proper SAN, and, and like you, um, split DNS is, is ideal. Um, quite often people don't have that, and you have to deal with um, different certs, but if you've got split DNS, uh, then yeah, it makes life easier. So this isn't going to affect people that use an internal certificate authority for Link on their on the standard additional servers or front end servers is it no no not at all if you if, you, if it's your internal cert authority you can um issue whatever cert you like really um and that's typical typical you'll have uh, an internal ca for the inside link roles and, and only use a public ca for the the public facing aspects of link so the edge and the reverse proxy um, but it is uh, on occasion people do use a, a public cert authority throughout the organisation. Um, I've done that a couple of times with link installs. It gets quite expensive quite quickly, but some people don't believe in running their own CA and taking that risk. They rather farm it all out and uh, pay per cert. So is that uh, a couple of certs with all the internal names and and another cert with the external names? Uh, no, so they just they just they had exactly the same amount of certs as you would have on a normal link deploy. Um, they just paid for to have the what you would typically send to your internal certificate authority. So the the front end roles, for example, you would send those off to the um, the cert authority, the public cert authority, and pay for them to issue them. We, right. So this is really going to affect customers who've, who've decided to do that. Yes, absolutely. That's where the issue potentially lies. If you've got dot local or dot int or whatever else that you don't own publicly, um, you need to be looking at an alternate route there. And that, that might be biting the bullets and going for an internal CA. Yeah, but I think that's going to be more practical than changing your namespace, realistically. Yeah. Uh, so what what other sort of implications is it going to have? Is this going to be far-reaching across the, the link community? No, I don't think so, really. it's not. I, I don't know about other deployments around, but I don't see a lot of people using um, dot or internal invalid namespaces in public certs, so... From the deployments I've seen, shouldn't shouldn't be a huge huge challenge. I think it's nice that they're outright banning that eventually because it's it's not correct. Um, obviously, it was a, a nice workaround, but um, yeah, moving forward, you'll have to do things properly, as it were. And uh, and when you're designing and deploying Link, it encourages you to take that approach of internal certificates and third-party certificates in the right places, anyway. Yeah, you've, you kind of if you want it to all work as seamlessly as it's, it's supposed to, then you you need to do the search right, basically. So the the long and short of it is, if you've got a well set up, well designed link install, you probably don't need to worry. And if you are going to have to worry, you probably know about it already because you're going to be renewing these certs, and uh, you're going to know that you've had to buy specific certs because you didn't want to have an internal CA for those dot local names. Yeah, I guess that that's the only people that should should worry is if you haven't got an internal cert authority, then it's probably worth checking what your namespaces are and if you own the public equivalent of your internal namespace. If you've already got an internal CA, um, then odds are you really don't have to worry. Yeah, well, uh, I have a question uh, about this uh, namespace, uh, and uh, that's about uh, best practice if you're designing a new AD and uh, are thinking about deploying uh, unified communication and um, uh, thinking about certificates and uh, the cloud and thing. Uh, what do you think is a best practice uh, from now on? In terms of namespaces, should it be the same internally and externally, or should you still go with .local and, and stuff like that? 
I've personally always preferred uh, to use the external domain name or a subdomain of it to avoid these sort of issues. But a lot of people do prefer .local. And I don't think that's going to change. You're not suddenly going to have an AD that's wrong. And I would hope that there's not going to be anybody out there that's encouraging customers to do a cross-forest migration just because of this either. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the whole sort of like .local for your internal um, AD, DNS zone and .com or whatever for external is is completely completely fine. You know, I see that at every single client along the way Um and, you know, there's nothing to say, like, that you shouldn't continue to use that, I think. Yeah, Justin, uh, what... So do you think we we should just not worry about it and Stole, I think, uh, shouldn't change any best practices that he's got? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, <clears throat> there's no reason you should go about changing the way your AD is set up and certificates and things like that. Um, and, and one question that uh, one of our guys internally has asked before is when you're defining FQDNs for link servers internally, should you actually use your SIP domain for the machine and pool names rather than um, the AD FQDNs, machine FQDNs for those? Um, and I think when you're talking about anything internally, you should always use the FQDNs because it's going to match um, what's defined as the... Uh, um, net BIOS name and sort of DNS suffix with AD membership. So um, yeah. keeping that all sort of um, at one standard internally. And then as far as your SIP domain and public names are concerned, just address those concerns like on a, a case-by-case basis where you've got to make something available externally. So with matching the, the SIP domain to the uh, fully qualified domain name of the, the servers themselves, really you're just at, that would be adding extra complexity into the implementation. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because if, say, within Link's uh, topology builder, if you define your pools and machine um, FQDNs as like NetBIOS name dot um, SIP domain, that that means that um, you know your certificates need to match up to that because it's going to do the mutual TLS um, authentication between servers, and it just adds a layer of complexity that um, doesn't need to be there if you just define everything as what it is, but it's internal names. So the thing is, you just want to try and make sure you keep it as simple as possible. Absolutely. If, yeah. if someone else walks into it and has a look at it, you want them to be able to understand it as quickly as possible. Uh, whether they're coming in to help you or whether they're coming in as a new team member, if they understand Link or they understand Exchange, you want someone else to look at it and go, right, okay, I understand that. They, you don't want to have to go, well, we had this brilliant idea that we would, but all these, we wouldn't use our, our proper domain name for the AD for the fully qualified domain names, fully qualified domain names, but we'll, we thought we'd use the SIP domain. And if and as you start doing things like that, then those are going to add up and you're going to have an environment that needs the a massive book to just understand the changes from uh, the sta- from the standard practice. Yeah, I mean, it starts to detract a little bit away from what is communicated in official TechNet documentation. You know, like in the in those library articles, it says, you know, like um, name your you know, name your pool or machines based on what they're called within AD. You know, and and so if you needed to hand that over or introduce somebody else into that environment, they'd be able to look at it and be familiar with it with whatever else that I'd seen um, out in the wild previously. Well, uh, Justin, um, to shoot in, uh, if you're designing a new AD from scratch, uh, would you uh, still use the local uh, internally and the public uh, domain externally? Or would you start using the same namespace internal and, and externally? 
I think in, uh, if you have a strategy of moving to Office 365 uh, in the future and um, the UPN suffixes need to be the same as your public uh, namespace and so on. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a pretty valid point, actually, Stola, because if if you do have that vision going forward, um, then it's not a bad idea to, to bring that into account. I mean, I'm a bit of a sort of old-school guy, and if I set up a new AD environment, it's going to be like domain.local because I want to just keep that all kind of isolated. But if a customer has a sort of roadmap to move into the cloud, then they might want to build that into the design decisions from the word go. But that doesn't, that, that doesn't matter too much because you can just add the proper domain name as a UPN uh, suffix at a later date. Uh, the only thing you're going to have to change is people's UPNs. I don't know many customers where people are actually logging on with those UPNs anyway. They're usually still using the NetBias domain backslash username. So I don't think the impact is, is massive if you do start implementing .local, decide to move to the cloud, have to change UPNs uh, a year down the line. Yeah, I think it more so relates to um, if there's a heavy dependency on, on certificates and you've got to be using the public certificates internally, you know. So if you said from the word go, okay, we're deploying a new AD forest and we know that for whatever business or technical reason we can't deploy our own certificate authority internally, then you might want to start naming um, AD as, you know, company.com and that kind of thing so you can continue to use those public certs internally. Now, that's going to take quite a lot of foresight to to think about that at the time, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, and foresight is uh, not always done done the best in, in, uh, in technical <laughs> community, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's bo- yeah, it boils down to have uh, control over your DNS uh, namespaces and, and, and know how to configure or to discover in both Exchange and Link, I guess, then. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I've, I see challenges in customers every day where... I say that um, Link, both in the desktop client and mobile client, to be able to access Exchange Web Services needs to hit autodiscover dot whatever your SIP domain is because it builds that based on your SIP address and just prepends autodiscover. And lots of companies have just got their Exchange Web Services internal URL defined as a service connection point that resolves to their internal um, AD DNS and don't have the facility to do split DNS or whatever, and that could be a major deployment blocker, and it starts generating errors in the mobile client for Link and desktop client where they don't start to see voicemail in the phone tab where they should and this kind of thing. So it's it's definitely a challenge for a lot of customers. And hopefully from the Exchange perspective, uh, forcing people to consider using the same external and internal uh, URLs will encourage them if they're going to have to do a bit of split dns to also do those auto discover records as well uh, and a lot of companies have mobile devices that connect to their internal wireless too and we'll need to discover uh, auto discover and other records so if they haven't considered it and are looking at doing more mobile deployments they need to start thinking about it now anyway uh, regardless of these certificates yeah, I mean, mobile clients are um, a nice little Pandora's box in their own sense in that um, if you want them to sort of hit internal resources, then those mobile clients need to trust whatever CA issue the certs to your uh, internal servers. So a lot of the times what we find is that if you have internal Wi-Fi and you've got mobile clients connecting to the Wi-Fi network, get them to go outbound first and come back in um, by, say, your reverse proxy. So there's one connection point for uh, mobile devices for the entire org. 
Uh, that sounds really good with load balancing. Yeah, yeah it makes it a bit simple. <laughs> uh, I was going to say it could be disastrous as everything just hits one uh, CAS server or something like that. But uh, uh, I, if you're, I suppose if you're natting it with a range of IP addresses, you're going to be okay, aren't you? Um, yeah, I mean, typically what we do when we're talking about the Link Mobile Client is um, there's two ways you can provide it. Uh, the Link Mobile Client will look for either linkdiscover.sip domain or linkdiscoverinternal.sip domain. Um, yeah. And what my sort of recommended approach is to not um, allow the, link, the mobile client to find link discover internal at all and just resolve linkdiscover.sip domain to the external IP address of your reverse proxy so the traffic essentially hairpins, goes in and yeah. straight back out. And so that way you've just got one traffic path coming in and you don't have to worry about uh, certificate trust issues and um, split DNS and that kind of thing. Yeah. And another certificate change is the bit length uh, is going to be raised to 1,024 from 512. Uh, I don't know whether that's going to affect many Link customers. Uh, would you think so, guys? No, I don't think so. I mean, because the default um, uh, bit key link for Link is 2048 now anyway. So. Uh, one, one thing I've seen is one of Dave Stork, our producer's blog post, uh, where he says that it's quite a common... Uh, or it's it's certainly out there on load balancers to reduce the load on the load balancer using a a lower uh, using a lower 512 bit key to to allow more connections and once this window update is applied that's going to stop working. I can see perhaps why that would be in place. I wouldn't have wanted to implement that in the first place. I would have said no. Let's let's go for 2048 bit and and, and use the use the certificate. Uh, the exchange has generated just like link a 2048-bit key and size the environment accordingly in the first place. Uh, but that's not always possible, is it? To, you know, if it, especially if it's an existing load balancer and you've got to piggyback on on it. So, based on that, I would think it could affect some link customers if they are using an existing load balancing or reverse proxy solution, where the where the, the admins have decided to use the lower bit length to to use the lower bit length to make sure that they can actually handle the load on their existing uh, load balancers or reverse proxies that they're going to piggyback on top of. Yeah, I think it's it's one thing you would want to engage your networking guys to say, hey, you know, what's um what's the bit length the certs are sitting on the load balancers and um, make sure those guys are aware of what changes are required. Right, so that's the advice. Talk to your network guys and see what changes are going to be required, uh, especially if you don't manage that load balance yourself and you know they've had to get special certs for it. Uh, the the next thing we want to talk about is Windows 8 and the unified communications implementations uh, with Server 2012. Uh, Tom, uh, this is an area that you're interested in, isn't it? Yeah, so I've, I've been running Windows 8 since the developer preview, and I've been running the, the Server 2012 RC as well. Um, so it's interesting to think about what the two of those mean as far as uh, as far as Link goes. Um, two quite different uh, areas, really. Um, if we look at the Windows 8 client OS firstly, um, we know that the, the current Link 2010 client works fine on Windows 8. I know quite a lot of people are running it. Um, but obviously, it's mainly a desktop app. Um, so, what are the implications of the kind of the new Metro world as far as as far as Link uh, goes? 
Um, and, and also, what are the implications of uh, Windows 8 RT with the new ARM uh, processors, the Tegras and such, um, as far as Link goes? Not, not a lot we know at the moment, but we know the RTM is, is just around the corner now, so it starts of August. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the, in the coming weeks as far as Windows 8 client and Link goes. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it, to have one of these Surface tablets, especially the, the, the cheaper ones that are iPad sort of size, with a proper full Link client on it. Uh, I have no idea what's going to be in Link 15, but that would be good. That That is what would sway me from buying an iPad. And I've been considering getting an iPad for myself, because uh, my other half has got one, and I quite like it. Uh, and if I could get one of the, the ARM uh, Windows 8RT uh, Surface tablets and it had full link, I would definitely use that. Yeah, they look like really uh, really exciting devices. Um, obviously, the proof will be in the pudding as with all these things. But, um, yeah, it's funny. I've had a lot of people talk to me in Enterprise about the, the surfaces, and I see a lot of people testing iPads in small numbers at the moment. So um, people are certainly aware of it, which is interesting. Yeah, because uh, the, the iPad is, is great, but it's a bit of a, a letdown when it comes to... The link client, and and with iOS as well, uh, especially someone like me that uses Office 365, uh, I can't use any of the, the voice features at all. I can't even join a conference on an iPad uh, unless I've got a, a PSTN dial-in. Uh, so having the full features on a, a proper small light tablet would be really good. Uh, and from Server 2012, uh, what what sort of things do we need to, to take into consideration? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Server 2012, again, RTM uh, is August, so we should see bits relatively soon. Um, I've been running the RC as my main lab um, OS for my Hyper-V servers, and it's been uh, pretty good, pretty stable. Um, it's all, all very, very PowerShell-centric. Um, what's interesting is that uh, I, I saw a technical blog post the other week saying that the general support, uh, mainstream support for 2008 and 2008 R2 is now less than a year. Um, obviously, you go into extended support, which goes on forever anyway. Uh, I think that's 2018 offhand. But it does mean that we're going to have to start looking at what the deployment steps are for, for Link on, on 2012 at some point. And um, when that official support will happen, it will be interesting. So within 18 months, we're going to expect to stop deploying Windows Server 2008 R2? Uh, yeah, I mean, it will be out of mainstream support in, in a year, so that doesn't mean people will stop deploying it, especially in Enterprise, because they have the gold images and all the, the stuff to go through as far as approved images. Um, but it certainly would be preferable to deploy it on an OS that's going to be supported for longer. Yeah, because I mean, for quite a long time, people were deploying... Exchange 2007 on Windows 2003 uh, and that's one of those things that you live to regret uh, and while I imagine the Way 15 stuff may be supported on, on current uh, OS's uh, it's one of those things that again people aren't necessarily going to be deploying it at the moment it comes out but they should be considering 2012 then for the, the base OS because although it's new you're implementing something new as well uh, and if it's going to hang around for the next three to, to five years at, at least, you, you don't want to be wishing that you'll put it on 2008. Uh, you don't want to be wishing that you'll put it on 2012, sorry, when you, uh, when everything else around you is, is on that and these are the only stragglers left behind on 2008 R2. 
Yeah, absolutely. The, the other interesting thing will be um, Server 2012, certainly in the RC um, and in the, the preview versions, has been uh, defaulted to Server Core rather than the GUI version. And Microsoft have been very vocal about Core and no GUI being their preference. So uh, will we see that filter down to link deployments? will be quite interesting. Again, I'm, I'm kind of all for that because if you keep people off the servers uh, as much as possible, they're less likely to, to break things and we're less likely to have to go in and try and fix them. So the, the more of uh, the kind of the link method of control panel being web and uh, PowerShell remoting, the better, really, I think. Yeah, it'll be really good to see what the, the take-up is with that. Uh, even with, with Hyper-V, people seem... Uh, a little bit hesitant to use core because it's such a pain to configure things like load balancing uh, on the, the network cards uh, because they haven't got access to the, the GUI. Uh, but they want to use core. They just don't feel like if there's an emergency where they need to, to administer the server that they, they can. And if uh, 2012 uh, does encourage more people to use core, I'm, I'm with you. I think that's going to be absolutely fantastic. And with it, and with Exchange as well, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether that can be deployed on 2012 Core 2. Do, do you expect to see uh, any of the current versions of Exchange and Link updated to work on 2012, Tom? Yeah, I'd certainly uh, expect to, um, not straight away by any stretch, but it would be usual for, for Microsoft to eventually um, say that the current products are supported on the newer OSs and um, we've certainly seen that happen in the past um, Yeah, Exchange 2007 uh, did get eventually updated to work on 2008 R2 It's going to be uh, an interesting time as far as with all the new OSs coming out and uh, the, the future office stuff it'll be interesting to see what happens this year Yeah I think with the, I think with the, the server um, supportability things usually it's kind of like 12 to 18 months after general release of like the latest version that the sustain engineering guys get a chance to kick in get, like get to, to work on the old version to see if it work on the new version of the server and that kind of thing yeah i've heard good things so far um paul cunningham i think did manage to get uh, and he'll probably correct me on this when he hears this did manage to get exchange uh 2010 service pack to working on server 2012 so Maybe we won't have to wait that long. Maybe we won't have to wait 12, 18 months just to get it working. But uh, uh, I, I won't keep my fingers crossed anyway. Because uh, that's the the thing. We're still going to be deploying Exchange 2010 for quite a while yet. Uh, we're not suddenly going to be having Exchange 15 deployments uh, uh, all ready to go. I don't know if it's any different for, for you guys with Link, whether uh, come six months' time or or, you know, January, February, uh, everyone's going to start going to Link 15. But I can't really see that happening with Exchange, uh, at, not at least straight away, uh, until uh, past Surface Pat 1, perhaps. I think a, a lot of people are still on 2003 and are going to be wanting to go to 2010 because they know it's a good, solid platform. Yeah, I mean, this is something we've um, we've definitely thought about in terms of, like, our pipeline and customers and things. You know, like, once an announcement comes around of the next version, then, you know, does our, do our projects just stop all at once while everybody waits for um, the next version to come out, you know? So, but I think there's always going to be customers that are evaluating things, and there's always that general rule of wait for a service pack one kind of, um, uh, like, thinking. Um, 
but yeah, I think there'll, there'll definitely be those, those more forward-thinking organisations that are going to want to stop any considerations of the current version and wait for you know the 15 versions to come out in the next six months or whatever. Yeah, and we still don't know whether it is going to be Link 15 or, or Exchange 15 or whether it's going to, going to be 2013, 2012. Uh, more and more people say 2013, uh, so uh, I'm still calling it 15. Are you calling it 2013 or 15? It's, yeah, it's definitely still 15, you know, the code name. Yeah. Well, we may find out in, in the next few weeks there's some rumours that uh, Office might be uh, revealed on, uh, on uh, the... 16th perhaps uh, we don't know whether that's going to be uh, true for the rest of the server suite though that, that sits behind it or whether it's just going to be the client uh, but by the time you hear this podcast uh, you may well know more than we do right now all right uh, should we move on to these questions on facebook um, I think uh, there's nothing more there for a server eight uh, unless star wants to jump in and uh, say something about windows 8 and collaboration so, moving on, uh, let's go on to uh, a few of the questions that we've got from Facebook this week. Uh, they're mostly link questions, so I'm going to pose them uh, to Starlight, Justin, and Tom. Uh, two companies use link extensively. Company one buys company two. Company two's users all must be migrated to company one's SIP domain while managing to cause as little disruption for external contacts as possible. And both companies use enterprise voice and want to be able to maximise collaboration and presence visibility between the two SIP domains prior to transitioning. Any thoughts, guys? Um, yeah, I had a bit of a think about this one. Um, and this is not an uncommon scenario we um, come across uh, within organisations. Um, so I think the first thing to address would be that if you wanted to maximise collaboration and presence visibility between those two companies prior to moving them across, the first thing you want to do is set up federation between the two environments. So have uh, you know the edge servers deployed between company one and company two and set up federation so those, the staff of those two companies can start talking together and, and get to know each other a bit more. Um, and this is actually somewhere where Link can provide a lot of value in a merger and acquisition scenario. Um, but then moving forward from that, the first thing you need to address um, is really a, a larger technical challenge, and that's um, migrating uh, user accounts from um, from company two's AD domain to company one's AD domain, because uh, we can't have link without um, the AD accounts uh, existing first and foremost. Um, and I think in the question there was something about uh, company one moving into company, sorry, company two moving to company one's SIP domain. Um, I think they were sort of more talking about link environment um, and that they may still want to maintain company to SIP domain, i.e. at uh, wingtiptoys.com like that. Uh, so if that was a scenario, what you want to do is um, provision, say, if company one was contoso.com and company two was uh, fabricam.com, um, provision fabricam.com as a SIP domain on contoso's link environment so that then once... Uh, Company 2's AD accounts have been moved over. We could actually enable them for link um, with the SIP domain that they had originally in their previous environment. And so once we've done that, um, we can effectively move into thinking about exporting uh, data from uh, Company 2's link environment because they'll have had um, their contact lists and everything already um, there from however long the link environment had uh, been in place. So 
So are there any good tools to do that apart from uh, things like the scripts by Jeff Gillett? Um, I mean, there's, you can use the, the, um, the built-in DB import export tool for this, yeah. um, which you know, I've written a blog post about this, and it's pretty easy to um, get out your SIP, uh, SIP contacts, um, and there's no real dependency on link versions or domains and things, because it's all just um, just data in an XML file that uh, corresponds to each SIP URI. So um, what you do is uh, run those DB import exports, uh, tools to export all the contact lists out from company two's link environment. And so then you've got all their data there. You probably there's going to be existing conferences and things there that you might have to take a hit on in terms of data loss. Um, but the main thing we want to concentrate on is is getting over their um, their contact lists primarily is what we see is um, is worthwhile moving across. This may may differ from company to company. They may just say we don't care, start from scratch. Um, in which case you would just need to sort of skip the export and import of the contact list step. But um, if it was a requirement, you'd export out the contact lists, then grab all those XML files, and then import them into uh, the company two user accounts on the company one link environment. So then we've got some sort of fresh user accounts there. They've been um, enabled for link. They've got their contact lists. They're ready to go. So you would sort of start to test functionality and um, make sure that everything was okay, then users were signing in. Um, maybe some issues around DNS and certificates, depending on network connectivity and where these users are signing in from. You know, if they're still in the um, sort of company two's networks, then there may still be some challenges around DNS uh, that need to be addressed. Um, so, what about from the the client side uh, and uh, updating the link client to to use the new uh, SIP domain? Um, well, I suppose this really. Uh, if they're signing in with their old SIP domain and you've modified DNS to point that SIP domain to uh, Company One's link environment, um, then the link client would find um, Company One's link server through DNS automatically. Um, and the same applies because it's basically if you put in you know, username at company.com into the link environment, it will build um, the DNS records uh, by itself and find those through SR service records within DNS and, and find the server to sign in. Um, there is a dependency on the certificates though, so if say company's two, company two's machine is joined to company one's domain, they may get a certificate error and the client may fail, fail to sign in. Uh, is it likely to cause any problems with things like federation? Uh, definitely, yeah. There would need to be some external DNS changes so that say company two uh, with their fabricam.com domain, they would need to modify their external DNS records so the service and A records point to company one's edge server. And in turn, in turn that edge server would need to have its uh, certificates updated to support fabricam.com as well. So the switchover, is, it's definitely not a gradual process. It's a big cut-over migration. It's, yeah, it's, it's quite high impact, I reckon. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's something that shouldn't be taken lightly. lightly. Um, and it's quite – because there's a dependency on AD accounts, um, there is a way you can stage this approach if you do some kind of synchronization um, with, say, there's um, a couple of AD attributes that you can do with this where if you um, maintain the MSRTC SIP originator SID on a contact object in um, the target domain, you can potentially do this, but – it's it's not a recommended approach because you enter in this coexistence period that's really messy to manage. So it's sort of like if you can manage a big bang approach, it's definitely from a technical perspective um, an easier way of doing it. 
Um, and I think there's probably like some other things to address there would be that if Company 2 had some quite specific conferencing or client policies going on, so say if uh, they were um, enforcing a particular IM disclaimer message or if they were um, not allowing uh, uh, PSTN callers to bypass lobbies and conferences and things like that, you would want to set up individual conference and client policies and uh, configurations on Company 1's link environment to bring across all those um, all those settings so you could maintain the same experience. Fantastic. Uh, so is, is there anything else that that we haven't covered, guys, then, uh, with that migration? That's that, that's a lot of information to, to take in for, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for the person that quest that, posed that question. It's, it's something that would um, would generally be accompanied by like a fifty page document, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, yeah. there's one thing we uh, we uh, need to think about as well is that, um, you can migrate the contact list, but uh, if you're changing the domain of company too, uh, you will need to inform everyone that uh, you have a new domain, uh, like federated contacts, uh, as well as uh, your uh, the company too internal uh, contacts. Because you will get, will get a new SIP uh, address if you are uh, getting rid of the company two uh, domain and using the company one domain. And uh, there's not going to be any way around that then, apart from telling users that they they've got to contact their their federated contacts. No, you need to actually uh, do some good uh, communication uh, skills, and uh, and you can't use proxy SIP addresses because users only can have one uh, SIP address. So you need to inform everyone on your contact list and also internally within the company that uh, you need to actually remove. Uh, or uh, you could manipulate the lists before importing them just in uh, to uh, switch the zip domain in the contact lists. But you still need to, uh, to um, inform federated users. So it's fairly low impact, but it's never going to be no impact whatsoever yeah. no absolutely not uh, and you you can use um, the contact import script from um, Jeff Goulet or uh, there was um, uh, a little program written by Marcus of Guy uh, that uh, adds imports and adds contacts I think anyone remember the name no I don't uh, no uh, it's it works uh, quite well. It's a GUI based, so you can't automate it. But um, that's one we'll find out uh, is is on the website that accompanies this podcast. Was that the one that um, one of the Office three six five MVPs did? No, uh, I will have a quick uh, look. It's called uh, CS Contact Importer, uh, and it was uh, written by. Um, uh, released by Microsoft, and uh, you can import contact lists and uh, its text files, and uh, it's a bit like uh, the import contact script from Jeff Goulet. Okay, cool. And uh, one of the other questions was uh, about tools for troubleshooting Link, uh, and what what sort of tools should every Link administrator have in their tool set uh, every day uh, when they need to troubleshoot something. Uh, I know there's a, a big set that I'd have for Exchange, uh, but for for Link, what would you guys recommend? One word, snooper. Uh. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you should, uh, of course, uh, uh, I think uh, the best practice for troubleshooting uh, tool is uh, uh, when you are preventive uh, is using uh, System Center Operation Manager, maybe. 
and uh, get warnings early on. Uh, but the tools for troubleshooting is, of course, Snooper and uh, Network Monitor or um, um, additional software like that. And the um, link logging tool is uh, really a good uh, troubleshooting tool. Yeah, I don't do uh, as much link as Exchange. And the, the link, uh, the built-in bits for link troubleshooting and logging, I found were, were surprisingly useful. Uh, they did a, a lot more than I expected uh, and got me through, you know, Cisco integration stuff where I wasn't sure what was going on under the hood and that the Cisco logging wasn't being particularly helpful. Uh, but Snooper uh, is is the, the main one that you guys would recommend, uh, along with Netmon, which is, is useful for any sort of, of troubleshooting, especially uh, for, for things like SIP. Uh, does Netmon uh, interpret SIP traffic uh, natively? Uh, not encrypted SIP traffic, no. Um, yeah, so there's um, there is a uh, a parser kit for uh, Netmon, but it doesn't natively uh, decrypt the traffic, so it's better to stick to the link logging tool and Snooper where possible because that will decrypt it for you without you having to do anything. So Snooper, the link logging tool, and uh, where you have to Netmon is is the best tools that you need in your set when you're troubleshooting link. Uh, I think that's going to be about it for today, guys. Thank you very much uh, for joining me. And thank you for listening to this week's show. Uh, Next time, Pat's going to be hosting again. And if the rumours are true, we might be talking uh, about something new. I'd also like to thank our producer this week, Dave Stork, and Michael Van Horenbeek for doing the editing, which I'm sure won't take in five minutes. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at the UC Architects and join us on our Facebook and LinkedIn groups. So it's goodbye from me and the team and thanks for listening.